0: This week's TripCast is presented by Raise Your Hand Texas and the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas. The Raise Your Hand Texas Foundation is excited to present For the Future, a series of more than 40 candidate forums and town halls leading up to the 2020 election. Find an event near you at raiseyourhandtexas.org. Want healthcare insights? Listen to the Blue Promise podcast hosted by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at standingwithtexas.com. Hello and welcome to the January 29th uh, edition of the texas tribune tripcast my name is matthew watkins uh, managing editor for news and politics at the tribune i'm filling in for alexa today who um we understand is trying to dig out of a pile of snow in the panhandle um joining us this week are uh three uh political reporters for the tribune cassie pollock alex samuels hello and patrick Svitek. good afternoon Good afternoon.
1: Uh, <laughs> Did you sleep at all, Patrick?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go okay, I got sleep. an email from yeah, you at 3.30 yeah. in the morning, so yeah. <laughs> I a little worried.
2: So, some of the sleep was between Bashdrop and, and the Austin airport, but I got
0: sleep. Okay, very good. Oh, okay. So we got three topics for you today. Topic one is the uh, special election last night. Topic two um, is... Uh, the state of the grassroots in Texas, and topic three is the presidential race. We'll start with topic one. As we joked, uh, Patrick may be a little sleepy today because he was up late last night in Fort Bend County, uh, keeping an eye on the first elections of 2020 in the state. Um, Three special elections uh, for House seats, the most notable being House District 28, um, where Gary Gates, the Republican Uh, defeated Eliz Markowitz uh, by 16 percentage points. Uh, I I joked at last week's TribCast that I was gonna write down in my calendar, calm down today, (laughs) because uh, we didn't wanna make too much of these results. But 16 percentage points is quite a uh, margin there. This was a seat that got a lot of attention. What happened, Patrick?
2: Yeah, so Democrats had made a a really big play for this seat and in the process of doing so, I think really raised expectations around this election. Um, you saw at least three presidential candidates, Mike Bloomberg, Elizabeth Warren, um, and another one that I'm blanking on, uh, get involved in this race. You had state and national groups pour hundreds of thousands of dollars into the race. Uh, you had Beto O'Rourke coming off of his uh, unsuccessful presidential campaign, really make this his top political priority and you know made Fort Bend County effectively his second home and was spending days and days there at the time, blocking, uh, block walking, door knocking. Uh, and really trying to organize and get out the vote, um, and so you just saw this massive amount of tension go into this race, and it ended up, um, you know, as you pointed out, not being that competitive uh, after all. Um, this was always going to be, um, you know, a tough race for Democrats. If you just look at the the numbers, you know, the the former Republican incumbent John Zerwas uh, won by eight percentage points in 2018, won re-election by eight percentage points in 2018. Uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, didn't. Carry this district. He lost it by three points, um, and it's it's a changing district. Uh, but based off those margins, it's still a, a reach district for Republicans and Democrats. You know, rightfully note that on their list of you know twenty pickup opportunities in in November, this one is like number sixteen. Um, but that all doesn't change the fact that you had them make a very serious play for this seat. They clearly saw something here um, and, uh, you know, in doing so, race expectations, I think, in, in, a, in a pretty, uh, you know, inflated way.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can try to downplay the race now, but I mean, the fact remains that there was a lot of money spent here and a lot of energy expended trying to flip this seat. Cassie, you know, you, Patrick, all of us here are going to be watching the attempts to flip the House over the next year um, especially in November, uh, should we read anything into this? Is there, is there any reason to be concerned or less optimistic, uh, if you're a Democrat?
3: Um, not too sure about that. I mean, kind of the way that I was looking at it is it had Gates margin of victory been, you know, two percentage points or three percentage points, the reactions that we'd be seeing, uh, you know, that we'd be watching play out on Twitter right now would be very different, uh, as opposed to the 16, uh, percentage points that he, you know, won by last night. Do you, agree with me on that yeah for sure yeah. yeah um that's kind of how i've been thinking of it um not i don't think that this puts either of the two parties necessarily in, you know a, a, a more you know a better place of certainty than they were before this special election as you said a lot can happen between now and election day but you know 16 uh 16 winning by 16 points is uh definitely something that republicans can write home about
0: Sure, I mean, it, oh go ahead. I
2: was going to say there were, there were some some pretty unique factors at play in this race that we won't see in other uh rate most other races in November, for example, Gates is very wealthy. He was able to pour over a million and a half dollars of his own money in the race. Uh, and to be, you know, to be sure at the same time, Markowitz was was well funded. She was not able to outraise or outspend him, but she was also very well funded with the support of these state and national groups. Um, so it wasn't they weren't on total equal financial footing. Um, but you know, Gates was obviously able to have a financial advantage in this race, and uh, you know. Um, I haven't looked through the personal financial disclosures of every member of the State House, but I, I don't think that every single you know, Republic, targeted Republican incumbent up for re-election in November is gonna have the capacity to put a million and a half dollars into the races.
0: That being said, Republicans felt pretty good last night, and we saw you know, some sarcastic tweets mm-hmm. from Greg Abbott, from uh, some people who work for Greg Abbott. I mean, what, can you kind of sum up what the reaction has been among both parties to these results?
2: Um, I think Dem- you know Republicans you know could, <laughs> After the early vote numbers came in, you kind of saw this building, where, you know, the, both sides were able to analyze the early vote numbers and, and kind of project forward, you know, what the results were going to look like. And so they had, you know, coming out of Friday, both sides kind of had a, a good idea where this race was going to end up on election night. Um, and then, you, you know, over the weekend, you increasingly saw that Republicans could uh, barely contain their glee <laughs> and uh, were building up to these um, victory laps, uh, you know, rightfully so. They obviously had a resounding victory on uh, Tuesday night. And, you know, one thing that Abbott and other statewide office holders, I think, are are really eager to do is to try to use this to tarnish the political effectiveness of of Beto O'Rourke who obviously became, um, you know, kind of the the face of her, of Liz Markowitz's campaign beside the candidate herself, just given all the time and energy that he poured into this race um, and clearly came up short in a very big way. And so, um, you know, I think they're very eager to use this to kind of, uh, you know, show that he is or try to argue that he is not as effective of a political surrogate as Democrats believe he is going forward. Um, and, you know, and on that point, you know, I think it's it's very clear that, you know, he is talented in in bringing people together. And he was able to bring over 1,100 people through his new group, he says, to to Fort Bend County. They knocked on tens of thousands of doors. You know, he was able to bring people from mainly from Texas, but from, you know, Eleven different states, or something like that. There's no doubt that he has this, you know, powerful convening power and connection with um, voters in the state. But I think the question that's being raised here is how much of an equal and opposite reaction is that spurring on the opposite side. And I haven't seen any, you know, data or hard numbers on this, but just anecdotally, um, you know, you saw your Republicans energized to vote against the, you know, the Beto O'Rourke-backed candidate in this race. Um, so I think that's going to be a, a debate going forward.
0: Yeah, he uh, he clearly can motivate Democrats. It seems like he can motivate Republicans too. I mean, you even see that in fundraising emails, right? If, if Beto O'Rourke mentions any kind of a race, the Republican will immediately kind of blast something out saying, you know, Beto's targeting us, you know, things right. like that. So we'll see. I mean, what, what do you think, Alex? Is there going to be less, is this going to change in any way, how anxious um, people are to see, you know, Beto campaigning for them or block walking for them or getting involved in these races?
1: I think it's definitely a valid question of how effective Beto is uh, for Democrats, because like you said, um, he is very good at getting people out. But at the same time, Republicans can easily use that to be like, you know, I've seen emails gun grabbing Beto is, you know, targeting this race or gun grabbing Beto is putting millions of dollars into this race or whatever it is. Um, so I think it's an effective argument for both sides, but it'll be interesting to see post-Markowitz what races he really focuses his attention on in 2020. And uh, especially if we go up north to the more competitive, like Dallas area, suburban seats, kind of if he focuses his attention there and how Republicans use that to their advantage.
0: You know the, the the thing to remember here is, as Patrick you've pointed out in your stories, is that Gary Gates has um, you know has won this seat. He will be a member of the Texas Legislature, but he will have to win re-election before he gets a chance to actually you know vote on any bills or or you know be a part of a session. Uh, what do we think about this in November? Do 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 Democrats give up on this seat? Do you think they have a chance of making it competitive the second time it's on the ballot?
2: you know, they're vowing to, you know, they're vowing to continue to fight for the seat through the general election. And that was honestly Liz Markowitz's, you know, almost exclusively her point last night. I mean, I didn't actually hear her concede. I'm sure that she ultimately called or or made some kind of statement on that, but she came into her election night party and her, you know, her main message was we're not done. You know, I'm on the ballot again in November. It's gonna be a different electoral environment in November and and this is when we're gonna take that seat. Um, Obviously, Gates is going to, while he may not cast a vote during session, uh, during a session, for the time being, you know he's going to benefit from all the, um, you know, uh, you know all the, the benefits of of incumbency, uh, which there are some even if you're not, you know, voting in a, in a session or getting a chance to vote in a session yet, um, you know. And Democrats are saying that they're going to continue to target this seat through November, so we'll take them at their word.
0: You know, uh, special elections can be weird, and you know we saw that in uh, the the Senate with the um, the, the seat this solidly Democratic seat that um, Republicans flipped uh, right before the legislative session uh, last year. Uh, you know, I guess we'll, we'll just see what happens over the next few months. Um, I also wanna note, uh, if you um, are listening uh, via the live stream and wanna ask a question, you can send your questions via Facebook and Twitter. Um, use the hashtag TribCast, and um, if we get some questions, we might try to answer them later in the show. Uh, I wanna move on to our next topic, though. Um, Cassie, you had a story um, that ran this morning on our website, kind of looking at the relationship between Dan Patrick and the grassroots. Um, In 2015, Dan Patrick kind of took over the Lieutenant Governor's office, you know, some might say kind of on the shoulders of the grassroots, and he worked really hard to have them be involved in his governing. Uh, Flash forward to the most recent legislative session, 2019, um, and some of those members, even of the grassroots advisory board that Dan Patrick created um, talked about in your story having trouble getting meetings with Mm -hmm. the lieutenant governor or uh, a prominent uh, conservative activist complaining that Dan Patrick has gone purple. What's, What's going on here and why does that matter?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you laid it out pretty perfectly there. In 2015, Patrick, you know, Rushed into office with a nearly, you know, 20 20 point margin of victory, is is appointing people like Joanne Fleming, who's a prominent East Texas uh, Tea Party activist, you know, to chair this grassroots advisory board, and of course, you know, became pretty queer, uh, became pretty clear pretty quickly that there was just going to be, uh, you know, that there was going to be an issue um, over this pre K letter, and um, Greg Abbott, you know, had priority legislation. And uh, anyway, so that didn't end very well for them, but it didn't end necessarily the relationship that Patrick had with the grassroots. Um, fast forward again, like you said, to uh, 2019 and people like Fleming are sounding the alarms saying that Patrick and other state leaders have, uh, you know, turned purple. Um, and that's basically what prompted this story, which I think was kind of uh, a narrative that we saw play out over the legislative session. And um you know, s- s- traveled to Tyler, sat down with Fleming, and, uh, you know, she said that it all kind of was rooted in what happened in 2018 when Patrick and others didn't really get to enjoy or experience the margins of victory that they had, uh, you know, found themselves in four years earlier. So um, that was definitely from the Fleming side of the, of the aisle, uh, you know, being unhappy with state leaders. But then, you know, there's plenty of, uh, you know, former current state lawmakers, even members of that grassroots advisory board who uh, aren't necessarily taking the approach that Fleming is, is saying, and they're actually pointing the finger at people like Fleming and saying that, that you know, they're just a really hard to please crowd and that they more or less just at some point burn through any sort of goodwill that they had built with Dan Patrick in 2014 when they were helping to elect him. So, um, yeah.
0: Okay, yeah, sure, I mean, you know, I think it is striking to hear some of these people say, you know, it's two things. It's it's striking to hear some of these people say these things about Dan Patrick. You know, he would of all the elected officials in Texas, you know, statewide at least, uh, he would be the kind of the one you'd least expect to be having this kind of tension with some of these leaders. Um, But on the other side of it, too, is, I mean, just, you know, Joanne Fleming, as you mentioned in your story, uh, you know, has been a very powerful force in Republican politics over the Past decade, right? And um, you know, whether it was moderating candidate uh, debates or, or, or various other things, you know, people really sought after her endorsement. I mean, do we feel like she wields less influence with the people in the Capitol now than she did five years ago?
3: Yeah, I think that's definitely up for debate. Uh, the fact that um, you know, Fleming signed on to a letter that was sent to the governor's office and CC'd, you know, Patrick on it uh, in September. Uh, and, you know, Fleming told us that to this day, or, you know, as of earlier this month, she still hadn't received a formal response. And instead, Patrick, you know, took the other route and sent an email out to public supporters, you know, who had signed up for weekly email updates. Um, you know, just kind of seeing that as opposed to, uh, comparing it again to 2015 when she was chairing this board inside, uh, you know, effectively Dan Patrick's office. Um, just a different dynamic for sure, and you know these. We wrote this in the story, but the thing that I kept coming back to was that these once open lines of communication that people like Fleming, people like the Lenins and in, in Houston, you know, just essentially anybody who has, uh, who once had connections to the office, uh, that just looks different now.
0: Patrick, do you think this has anything to do with electoral trends, and maybe state people in the state are are starting to worry a little bit more about center than the the right in terms? Sure, I mean, especially
2: after the 2018 election. I mean, we saw this in the policy, uh, the agenda setting at the Capitol in terms of the issues that they focused on kind of shifting away from those uh, red meat, conservative priorities and focusing on more bread and butter issues that may be more appealing to more moderate voters, more suburban voters, places where they lost ground in, in 2018. Um, you know, I think this is a you know, part of that and a continuation of that. Um, you know, I think it's, a, it's just great to point out that like, <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the argument that these people are rabble-rousers, that don't matter, or anything like that, because it's the same, you know, Dan Patrick appointed her the chair of a board. Mm. People go and seek their endorsements. They go and speak at their groups. Um, they've been, el- these people have been elevated by statewide officials. Um, if you want to argue now. That um, they're outdated. <laughs> that, or, that they're, you right. know, that they don't matter. Um, then you got to take a quick look at your record as, you know, your campaign record. And I know that not every Republican in the state, every Republican official has, uh, you know, courted them so intensely or elevated them in the way that I just described. Um, But there's no doubt that they've been given influence by the actions of the, you know, these, these officials, some of these officials. Go
3: ahead. I was just going to say to that point, one thing that I found interesting, uh, again, in my reporting of the story and my conversations with Fleming was, you know, she's, over the past few months, has been part of some pretty public uh, displays of of trying to call out the lieutenant governor and the governor. Uh, you know that September 12th letter. You know she participated in a press conference up in Dallas, up in North Texas, I think in October, November. And uh, you know when I asked her about it, she said, "Hey, look, you know the hammer's not the first tool that I'm reaching for. If I'm going out and calling out these elected officials publicly, it's only after I've tried to talk to them behind the scenes." And so, again, according to Fleming, you know, after, after the legislature gaveled out in, in June and whatnot, uh, you know, she said that the lieutenant governor tried calling her a few times, she said, to ask just to sit down with her. And her response, again, that she told us was that, hey, look, you know, you don't need to be, be meeting with just me. You need to be meeting with all of these people who at one point you had helped elevate and were talking to regularly. and Anyway, that's that's where it all kind of ended.
0: Yeah, so you, you kind of ended this story looking forward, and uh, you know, one of the um, activists that you prominently featured in the story, Michael Openshaw, talked about how he's kind of re- quote unquote retired from activism. Um, Joanne Fleming talking a little bit about not uh, retired from Twitter. Not retired from Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joanne Fleming talking about how you know we. What was her quote? You, you know, I've been married to the same man for forty years, but uh,
3: everybody else is subject to recall. Yeah,
0: which was great. She, <laughs> she's really just uh, she gives some great quotes. I really uh, enjoyed that in the story. But you know, so the thing I, I want to kind of ask here is yeah. that we're. This is an election year. This is a year where um, up and down the ballot there is there are races that are important to Republicans. Is there any concern, or should there be any concern about this? leading to a situation where the people who would knock on doors, you know, yeah. do the kind of... Uh,
3: yeah. So there's kind of two camps on this. The first camp is, of course, the detractors who are casting out Fleming and others as outsiders who don't matter anymore. And, you know, they their claim or their line of argument is that these people represent a sliver of the GOP voting population, that it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, especially in a presidential election year.
0: And they're, and they're not... Voting for, you know, Bernie because they're mad at Dan right. Patrick. That's yeah. Right.
3: Um, and yeah. then people like Fleming <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, and then people like Fleming and Openshaw, who, you know, obviously lead these people who end up volunteering for a lot of these campaigns, said, hey, there's just not an appetite for us to give endorsements to these people anymore or for us to go and uh, give out a bunch of free work, phone banking, block walking, you know, stuff that's typically considered pretty vital to campaigns, especially if you're in a competitive seat. Um, so I think that that's you know one thing that would be interesting or that is going to be interesting to see play out. Do you see a lot our are, are campaigns actively uh, you know needing to work harder to try to find a lot of this volunteer work? Um, another point is this divide or you know divide disconnect whatever you want to call it. Um, James Dickey, the, the the state party chairman, is is facing a challenge. Um, or, from somebody from Alan West who's is, is trying to, I think, approach him from his right, and uh, that came up a couple of times in this story too. It didn't, didn't really explore it that much in the story, but you know at the upcoming state convention in May, I think uh, that's maybe one of the first uh, big opportunities for disgruntled conservative activists who have been unhappy with kind of the status quo uh, to maybe make some noise about it at the state convention.
0: Okay, well, before we get to our next topic, I'm going to uh, uh, thank a couple other sponsors. Uh, Lone Star College received approval to offer bachelor degree programs, including Bachelor of Science in Nursing, Bachelor of Applied Technology in Cybersecurity, and Bachelor of Applied Science in Energy Manufacturing and Trades Management. Learn more at lonestar.edu. And Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter Ronan Farrow takes the paramount stage Friday, February 21st, for a conversation moderated by Evan Smith. You guys might have heard of him. Tickets go on sale at tickets.austintheater.org. That's Austin Theater with an R E. dot org. Okay, moving on to our third and final topic. Um, we are now less than a week away from people actually. Is it, is it called voting when you're caucusing? People actually exercising <laughs> their democratic uh, abilities. It's <laughs> quite the wind-ups. <laughs> <laughs> right, Alexa yes. will be back next, <laughs> <laughs> um, And a little bit over a month away from people actually voting in Texas in the presidential primaries here, um, obviously all kind of eyes are on Iowa first. Um, but the activity in Texas continues to ramp up a little bit. We're seeing candidates, you know, swing by for visits. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, in particular, we're seeing, you know, Bernie Sanders start to have a bit of a more presence in the state. And, uh, you know, basically, we're getting close. Uh, early voting starts next month. Uh, where do things stand from where you see it, Alex, in these uh, presidential primaries?
1: Um, so. Polls as far as Texas so far, still pretty centered on, I'd say, Biden and Sanders here in Texas. Um, I know we had a Texas Lyceum poll come out earlier today. And I think Biden had 28% of the vote um, among uh, likely yep. I'll voters.
0: Give you, I'll give then. you the rundown. I wrote it down. So okay. we got, you got Biden at 28%, <laughs> Sanders at 26%, which I believe would be within the margin of error. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of top tier. Then you've got Warren at 13, Bloomberg 9, Buttigieg 6, Klobuchar 4
1: right i mean those those results aren't entirely surprising um i guess i would be more a little bit surprised that sanders is kind of picking catching up to biden's lead here in texas um i do think it's interesting that bloomberg is in fourth place in texas and i think that's just a product of him increasing his ground game in the state um he said he plans to hire 150 staffers in texas by the end of january um he's in texas now i believe he's in houston he's going to be in el paso a little bit later today and he's picking up endorsements from Texas officials along the way. So it'll be interesting to see someone who's skipping the four early states, how he can um, get attention in these Super Tuesday states.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see, um, obviously, in the previous Tribcast, I defended endorsements, the value of endorsements. <laughs> so I don't want <laughs> cont- to contradict that point. But obviously, we're seeing, you know, endorsement announcements, staffing announcements, office openings. Um but at the same time, it feels like so much of this or a good chunk of this is going to be just determined by what happens in those first uh, four states or whatever that come before Texas in the nominating calendar. And Texas begins early voting on February 18th, which is gonna be before Nevada and South Carolina. So when the first you know, votes are cast in the Texas primary in, those, in that early voting period, people are gonna be coming in, obviously, just you know, knowing what happened in Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, And I'm curious to see how that, you know, that timeline, those kind of overlapping timelines ultimately shape the Texas primary um, in terms of what the early vote looks like and what the the actual election day vote looks like. Because we're going to, you know, once we start voting in Iowa, this is going to become an, an, you know, extremely day-to-day race in terms of who has momentum and who's, you know, who's up and who's down. So um, it'll be very interesting to see what the Texas early vote period looks like versus Texas election day.
0: One of the other things I found interesting about the Lyceum poll was uh, head-to-head matchups with the top candidates, and um, the top-performing Democratic candidate in a head-to-head matchup with Trump in Texas was Bernie Sanders—a um, fifty 50-47 uh, matchup, him trailing Trump fifty forty-seven. Do you guys buy that, that? That Sanders is the most viable Democratic candidate in Texas?
1: I'll let Patrick take that one first. It
0: could be. I mean, it, you know,
2: it was—you know—it was compared to what fifty-one forty-six yeah. for Biden, yep. so not—not not a a huge difference. There was, you know, I, I don't know what it was on that question, but there was a considerable margin, of, you know, uh, margin, margin of error uh, in the poll. So um, I don't take too much away from that. I think, if anything, that's just a reflection of his growing strength in the primary. Um, you know, which we saw in that poll was, you know, Biden was maybe just two points ahead of, of Bernie for the top spot, well within the margin of error. Um, so I think that's just a reflection of his continuing kind of strength and moving up to the front of the primary pack, at least in Texas.
1: And I know you reported yesterday that Bernie's going to be up on the airwaves in Texas. But besides Steyer and Bloomberg, those are the only three now who have been on Texas airwaves. Biden hasn't done ads in Texas, Correct. right? Okay, yeah.
2: The Sanders campaign announced on Tuesday that they're going to be doing a two point five million dollar TV ad buy across both Texas and California ahead of Super Tuesday. Don't know exactly, you know, how long that buy is. You know, it's, you know, cable broadcast, um, but you know depending again depending on the time period that's enough money to make it you know when when uh, deployed uh, you know smartly uh, on on Texas TV in certain markets that that's a smart way to make it you know that's an effective way to make a dent in the in the in the race here
1: yeah it, the, it's I, not gonna be able to catch
2: up to just to be clear, not gonna be able to catch up to the
0: spending that Bloomberg mm-hmm. has been doing here but you know that, that that's a that's a real play is all I'm trying to say sure I mean if you look at the top four Biden Sanders Warren Bloomberg uh, Biden is at the top, but he also, I think, would really stand out among those four as the person who's played the least in Texas.
1: I'd say him him and Sanders have played the least so far in Texas. I mean, Biden has a Texas state director, um, but I think that's the only director on the ground that he has here in the state um warren and bloomberg um bloomberg mainly has built kind of an unmatched ground game i think he has the most offices open in the state or at least he will by the end of the month um he definitely has the most staffers here and i think warren's in second place um and i believe the bernie campaign not sanders himself physically but he had a bunch of barnstorms i actually don't know what those are i think patrick might have gone So one a couple months back he had a slate of those just throughout the month of January um, which is unlike what biden has done so far
2: yeah. yeah they're like organizing events where a staffer or a local you know super volunteer or something will kind of gather local supporters and volunteers and try to you know train them on how they can get involved in the campaign before paid staff arrives on the ground it's usually like the first wave of activity before a campaign actually starts building a
0: you know real paid infrastructure in a state like texas so, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. It really is. Okay, I think that's about all the time we have. Uh, I want to say thank you to Spoon for our theme music. Um, thank you to Cassie, Alex, and Patrick for uh, participating today. Uh, thank you to Raise Your Hand Texas and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, Lone Star College, and Ronan Farrow at the Paramount uh, for sponsoring the Tripcast. Uh, Alexa will be back next week. So.